You are listening to audio from Century Baptist Church. To connect with us, visit centurybaptist.org or download the Century Baptist Church app. Amen. Good morning, church. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. After taking some time the past couple of weeks to celebrate Palm Sunday and Easter, we're jumping back into our series in the book of Matthew. We left off towards the end of chapter 13. And we're going to be starting in verse 47. As you're turning there, just a quick review of where we are. As any good teacher does, the, the best teacher you've had has taken a concept, maybe a difficult concept, and broken it down to, uh, to a way that you can understand it and comes at it from different angles, different definitions, different illustrations to help you get a full understanding. And that's what Jesus is doing, he has been doing in chapter 13. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven. Now, he told us a long time ago at the beginning of his ministry, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he's been teaching about the kingdom. In the Sermon on the Mount, he taught about what the kingdom uh, looks like as far as how the people in the kingdom will behave. In chapter 13, there's been several little parables, little teaching coming at the kingdom from different angles. There have been three of them that talk about people's response to the kingdom. The parable of the sower or the soils, the parable of the weeds, and the parable of the net, which we'll talk about today. This is the response. Some repent, some reject. All will be judged in the end. Then there's two little parables about the nature of the kingdom and its growth. The parable of the mustard seed and the leaven. Even though the beginning of the kingdom seems insignificant, it will grow to tremendous influence. There are two about the value of the kingdom. The parable of the treasure in the field and the pearl of great value. Those people see the value of the kingdom and give up everything, throw aside everything they have for the joy of being a part of Jesus' kingdom. And then there's one at the end about the mission of the kingdom. What do people in the kingdom, what are we supposed to do? And that's a summary of how he's trying to teach us about the kingdom of heaven, his kingdom that he's established. And so today, two more illustrations, two more teaching that he gives us, and we're going to talk about what they mean and how we can live out what he intends for us to do. So turn to Matthew 13. We're going to begin in verse 47 and go through 52. I'd like to read this. If you please stand as we read God's word. Matthew 13, 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. You may be seated. So first, let's talk about what Jesus said, kind of what it means in this time of teaching here. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like, so he's using an illustration, a metaphor. He's saying, is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish. This was a very common way of fishing. Back then, you tie the net to the shore, and then you string it out. Sometimes it was a half a mile long. You put floats on the top and weights on the bottom, and you tie the other end to a boat. 
And the boat takes off from the shore and drags this net in a big circle until it comes back around to where it started. And you capture all sorts of crazy things in that net. And uh, you would maybe delicious fish, some nasty fish. He says good fish, bad fish, red fish, blue fish, you know how it goes. Uh, but every kind of fish was trapped. So this is, in a sense, similar to the parable of the wheat and the weeds. Remember when they, the, so, someone sowed bad seed and the weeds were growing up? They said, should we pull the weeds? Nope, leave them until the end. So it's kind of similar, but that parable is talking about the coexistence of good and evil. You're going to have to put up with evil until the end. This parable of the net is talking more about the consequence or the end because that net is slowly contracting until it closes and then comes the sorting which is verse 48. When it was full, when the net was full, when it came all the way around, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers and the bad they threw away. So this is the end. This is the, the, the sorting. This is the focus of this parable. Now, the parable doesn't talk about the dragging technique. It doesn't talk about the interaction of the fish inside the net or what makes them good or bad here specifically, but the focus is the sorting. The fish are judged by their nature. Are they good? Are they bad? Are they acceptable or unacceptable? Now, it's a metaphor, so as we work through this, there's limits to metaphors because, well, obviously, what happens to good fish? You sell them and eat them, so we're not going to go there. There's a different fate for uh, what Jesus is talking about, but the illustration is like the kingdom of heaven. Thankfully, he explains it, and he tells us what he means. Verse 49, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out, separate the evil from the righteous, and throw them, that's the evil, into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so he's explaining what this means. The net represents the inevitability of the kingdom. Everyone's in the net. Whether they know it or not, whether they like it or not, whether they believe it or not, everyone's in the net. The net is the word of God. It's the, it's the kingdom that he has set up, the boundary that he has set up. And everyone comes under the influence of that kingdom, again, whether they believe it or not. But he says there's two, there's two kinds of people, evil and righteous. They're separated by their nature, their fundamental nature. What does he mean by evil? Evil means those who are dead in sin, slaves to sinful nature, unbelievers, people who've rejected God, rejected his free gift of salvation. They're unsaved, unredeemed, and evil. And notice he contrasts, he doesn't say evil and good, and I'm glad he doesn't, because that tends to make us think, if you're not evil, you just need to be good enough to not be cast into the furnace. But it's not. He says righteous. So, It's not a matter of being good enough to get to heaven. You don't have to be good. You have to be perfect. That's the, that's the demand. It's holiness. And no one can achieve holiness on their own. That's why we talk about the forgiveness of sins, which is very important, but it, we also talk about Jesus' righteousness being imputed to us or given to our account so that we have that holiness to be able to enter into heaven. And so when he says the evil and the righteous, he's talking about those who have been redeemed and given the righteousness of Jesus in order to be acceptable in the sight of God. So when you become a Christian, this is important, you don't just become a new, improved version of yourself. You become a new self. There's a new nature. There's something different about you that distinguishes you from the old self. That's a very important distinction. 
Because there's only two types. Those who have been redeemed and saved and those who have not. It says, those who have been separated, who have been uh, considered evil, are thrown into the fiery furnace. They don't jump in. They don't walk in. They don't choose to go in. They're thrown there. Other places it says being cast into the furnace or cast into hell. There's only one thing to do inside a furnace, and that's burn. That's what a furnace was made for. It didn't, didn't say you sit next to the furnace and get warm or you put some on top to cook. It's in the furnace, and there's only one purpose, and that's to burn. Jesus says, in that place, which, just pause, that enough. He's talking about an actual place, an actual reality. It's not, ju- it's not just an idea or a theory or some abstract concept. It's an actual place with an actual experience. And in that place, there will be continual weeping and gnashing of teeth, crying out. And gnashing or clenching your teeth in pain and anguish. Now he says fiery furnace. A furnace, by its nature, is fiery. I don't know how fiery it has to be to be bad. For me, just fiery is enough. But this is a fiery furnace that lasts forever. Uh, Not just uncomfortable, not just annoying, not just inconvenient, but a constant, conscious experience of suffering and agony. He says that's what awaits those who are evil. Then he kind of Checks for understanding. Do you understand this? Are you getting what I'm laying down here? And I'm sure the disciples by now, I mean, they're just getting hammered by these. No one wants to say no. Like, uh, yeah, yeah, we get it. Now, whether or not they actually meant it, because sometimes it looks like they don't, but they said yes, and Jesus says, okay, if you get it, now what? Every scribe, he says, who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like, so here's a little mini parable for us, is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is old, new, and what is old. Okay, so a scribe was someone who learns or takes in information and then spreads it, either writes it or speaks it for other people to learn. Now, he wasn't talking about these disciples becoming Jewish scribes. Those guys are often the bad guys when they talk to Jesus. He's talking about uh, the, the activity of a scribe is to learn from the master, which his disciples are doing, and then to spread, disseminate the information. He says, when you do this, you're like the master of a house. You've been given a house full of treasure. And that treasure is old and new. And what he's talking about is the old revelation of the law and the prophets from the Old Testament. And what is new, what Jesus is telling them now. And you take all that treasure and it says you bring it out. That word, I I wish they translated it more accurately to say, that's to fling or scatter. You have a house full of treasure that you're not supposed to lock it, put it behind a safe. It's meant to be scattered and shared. So you guys are, your disciples are like these scribes and you have a house full of treasure that's meant to be shared. You see how fitting this is now with what came before, the the treasure in the field, the pearl of great value. You sell everything, you give up everything for this great treasure and then you give it because other people need to see it too. They need to see the treasure and give up everything and come to Jesus. There was a phrase I heard a few weeks ago that stuck with me. It was, um, value most what is most valuable and live accordingly. Value most what is most valuable and live accordingly. Meaning, 
Find your treasure in what is most treasurable, what is most valuable, and then live with that treasure for everyone to see. Live accordingly in how you behave and how you treat other people. And that's how we challenge them. This treasure is meant to be shared. So whenever we come across a passage that comes, that deals with some of these very serious issues, there's always questions that come up. So I just want to walk through a few of these questions and help us understand what we're talking about. One question is, when we talk about the end, the sorting, you know, when the, the fullness of time had come, that net has come and it's time for the sorting, well, what happens when we die? And let's just review what the Bible says about what happens when we die. Uh, a human is an amazing, complex, miraculous combination of one body, one soul, in one existence. Right? We don't know exactly how that works, but that's how we exist. Death is not going from existence to non-existence. It's going from one form of existence to a different type of existence. So when a believer, a Christian, someone who has been saved by God through Jesus, dies, their body stays here, but they're separated from, uh, the spirit is separated from the body, and their spirit goes directly to be with Jesus in the presence of God with all the angels and all the saints who have, been, who have passed away before them. We know this we get a clue from the thief on the cross. Jesus is sitting there, there's a thief over there, and he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Well, obviously, his body was still here, but Jesus said, you'll be with me, we'll be together in heaven. His spirit went directly to heaven to be in the presence of God. Now then, at the end of time, at the end of days, when God remakes the new heavens and the new earth, he will take that spirit and reunite it with a glorified version of, of the body that we had here, a glorified body that is fit to live forever in heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth. So there's a resurrection of our spirit and our old body in a new form. There's continuity between that spirit and, the, and our life here and there. We know that from Jesus. When he rose from the dead, he came out of the grave, they eventually recognized him. He had scars and it resembled, there was a, a continuity, but it was different. He had a different sort of body, a body that was fit for eternity. That's the sort of body that we get in the end as at the resurrection of the living. So then, on the other side, someone who is not saved by the grace of God, who has rejected God and chosen uh, and lives in sin and walks in rebellion, when they die, same thing, their body stays here, their soul is separated from their body, and they go to Hades or hell, where there is suffering and torment and anguish. This is the weeping and gnashing of teeth that happens in, with their spirit. And at the end, God will reunite that spirit with a body, with their body. There'll be a resurrection of the dead. And that body is fit now for eternal suffering in the lake of fire with Satan and the demons. So there's two resurrections. And this is Acts 24, John 5. It talks about the resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So you have one resurrected body fit to endure eternal punishment in the lake of fire and one resurrected body fit to enjoy eternal paradise in the new heavens and the new earth. That's the timeline, essentially, the overview of what happens when we die. The next question that always comes up is, okay, so what do we actually believe about hell? Hell is really hard to talk about. It's hard to comprehend and understand. It's, and it's hard for many people to believe. 
Um, R.C. Sproul, you may have heard that name, he said, by far, hell was the most difficult Christian doctrine. They struggled with it the most. Uh, Theologians and scholars have agonized over the reality of hell for centuries. Let me tell you, this is a really fun week of sermon prep. It's, uh, but it shows up all over the Bible, and especially here in Jesus' teachings. In fact, Jesus talked more about hell than anybody else. And there's a reason. He wants us to realize that hell is an essential reality that we must understand and believe. So what did Jesus say about hell? He said it's eternal torment, unquenchable fire, where the worm doesn't die, the fire doesn't go out. People will gnash their teeth and weep in anguish and regret. There's no return, no second chance. There's no way to warn anyone that you love. He calls it outer darkness, eternal fire, eternal punishment. He calls it a fiery furnace and like being cut to pieces. It's serious. This is literally life and death. And Jesus talked about hell a lot. He wanted to make sure that we wrestled with this. So how do we summarize what we believe about hell? First of all, the designation. Who will be designated for hell? So everyone who has not been saved by God, who rejects God's free offer of salvation through Jesus, will receive the just and righteous punishment of his wrath for their sin by being condemned to eternal conscious punishment in hell. If someone has not had their sins taken away and been given the righteousness of Jesus, they will pay the debt for their own sin eternally in hell. No one will be in hell who does not deserve to be sent there. This reality should be very solemn and sobering for all of us. It should motivate our desire to talk and share this with lost people. I mean, it's like if a boat's going down on the ocean and you're safely in a lifeboat and you're calling about, get in a lifeboat! You need to be rescued! The boat is going down, you're going to die! And they're on the ship saying, it's not that bad. I mean, they're going to serve dinner in a little bit, steak, it's going to be good. There are dance, there's a dance later. Uh, I, it's kinda, it doesn't seem that, that we're not moving. You're just overreacting. Stop yelling at me and leave me alone. And you're just begging, weeping, I'm not overreacting. This is serious. We should be desperate to warn people about God's wrath and offer them rescue through his son. So that's who's designated for hell. How about the degree? Is hell the same for everybody? Or is it worse for others? So just like there are degrees of reward in heaven... There are degrees of punishment in hell. No matter how much people joke about it, they make jokes about hell, and uh, it is not a place that you want to be. There is nothing good, nothing beautiful, nothing pleasing, nothing satisfying, nothing fun about it. You're always hungry, always thirsty, always unsatisfied, always suffering, always in anguish, always in pain with no relief and no hope to escape. Unrelieved torment and misery is universal. That's the baseline for everyone in hell. But Jesus gives us a few clues that there is varying degrees of punishment for various degrees of sin. In Luke 12, Jesus talks about servants. 
one who knew more had more accountability was given a more severe beating and one who knew less was giving a less severe beating. Now, they both got beatings, but there was different degrees based on their accountability and based on their sin. In Matthew 10 and 11, we talked about those infamous Old Testament cities, Sodom and Gomorrah and Tyre and Sidon, who were going to be judged. But Jesus says it's going to be more tolerable for those cities than for people who saw Jesus walk around in these cities and rejected him. So there's a degree of accountability, a severity of sin that will be punished differently. Paul talks about this in Romans 2, verse 5. He says, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So, in the same way that believers are supposed to store up treasures in heaven through living faithfully in Jesus, unbelievers are storing up wrath from God because of their sin that will be delivered on the last day. So there will be degrees of punishment. And thirdly, duration. How long is the punishment? There are several unbiblical ideas about hell that have, come, uh, that have come around over the years. People say hell is unfair, it's unloving, it's too severe, they're embarrassed about a mean God who would send someone to hell. It basically becomes emotionally unacceptable to believe in hell. And it's caused two main categories of error. One of them, one category is universalism. Basically saying, eventually, everyone is going to go to heaven one way or the other. I just can't imagine anything else because it seems like the most compassionate thing. So uh, no matter how things go on earth, you know, it can be good or bad. You could, be, you could make some mistakes. But eventually, everyone universally is going to be in heaven. That's universalism. There's different variations of it, but that's one error. The other error is called annihilationism. That's another category, meaning uh, there's people who deserve to go to heaven somehow, however that works. But... Everyone who doesn't, doesn't go on for eternal punishment, but they're annihilated, meaning they just stop, stop. they just cease to exist. Then some people say, you may suffer for a little bit and then you're done. But there's no, there's no way that eternal conscious punishment is a reality. So they say that you're annihilated. Those two categories of errors are people who probably are well-meaning and want to be compassionate, but are ultimately, there's a problem with those because it's called the Bible and there's a reason that we talk about hell the way we do. Revelation 14.11 says, And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. Okay, so he's talking about the torment in the lake of fire. And when the Bible says forever, what do you think that means? That means forever, right? What if you add another ever? Like forever and more forever? There's no ambiguity here about what that means. It's forever and ever. It goes on forever. It's not temporary. They don't pay their penalty and then they're done. It's forever and ever. It's very clear in Revelation. Jesus says in Matthew 25, and these will go away. He's talking about separating, again, sheep and goats. You have fish here. You got sheep and goats later. These will go to eternal punishment, and, but the righteous to eternal life. So if you believe in eternal life, he uses the same exact word for eternal punishment. You can't separate the two. In Mark 9, Jesus says in verse 47, If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better that you enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into hell. Then he says, Where, in hell, the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Okay, so think about this for a little bit. 
If, uh, say, a bird dies in your backyard, you don't see it right away, and you go out, ugh, what happens? Maggots, right? Worms. How long do the worms live? Until the food's gone. And then, then they die. That's, that's how long they can live. He's saying the maggots don't die. The worms never die. It's constant decomposing and decaying, but never being consumed. It's forever. Same with the fire. When does the fire go out? When the fuel's gone. He says the fuel's never going to be gone. It's never going to stop. Always being burned, never being burned up. So who is designated? Everyone who has not been saved by God through Jesus. How bad is it? It's unimaginably bad for everyone and worse for others. And how long? Forever and ever and ever, and you just add your evers. As I worked through this this past week, I came across a number of um, objections. And I just wanted to work through some of these. Objections people have to hell. Number one, these descriptions about hell are only symbolic. They're not reality. It's only symbolism. Well, think about what a symbol actually is. A symbol helps you describe something that's undescribable, right? It's an illustration or a metaphor. Uh, I could describe to you the sunset from my office window this morning, but it's nowhere close to the glory and the beauty of the real thing. I could describe to you how bad my thumb hurts after I got it smashed, but if I say, even if I say it's like every throb is like a hammer being pounded on my thumbnail, that's bad, but it's not as bad as the real thing. The illustration or the words are mo- meant to point to something that's worse. That's how it works. So if you just try, try to dismiss hell because Jesus uses symbolic language, I mean, what's he doing then? He's saying, okay, guys, hell is like a fire. You're always being burned. You're always hot. You're being burned everywhere. There's no hope for it stopping, and you can't even get a drink of water. No, nah, I'm just kidding. It's not going to be that bad. It's, it'll be all right. You'll be good. You'll be good. It's, it's more like if you're stuck, like if you get stuck outside of your house in the summer, it's really hot, and you can't get any air conditioning. It'll be kind of like that. Why would, he, why would he do it? Why would he talk this way, so serious about it, if it wasn't worse than he was describing? He's not trying to sugarcoat this by saying you're going to be constantly eaten with worms and it never stops. So you can't just dismiss saying it's symbolic. You could actually say it's far, far worse the reality is incredibly more horrific and terrible than he even describes. Objection number two. A loving God would never condemn people to hell. Okay, so this is it's not loving, it's not fair, it's not gracious, it's not very nice. Uh, this only works for people who have made up a God in their own head and not the real God. So first of all, we cannot define God's love on our own terms from our own perspective. It's impossible. Secondly, we can never pit one of God's attributes against another by just saying that God is love because he is perfectly complete in love and mercy and faithfulness and grace and justice and holiness and purity and righteousness. So we can't process how this works in the completeness of all of his attributes working together because he's God, we're not. And so his love 
is pure, just like his justice and righteousness is pure. And all of them work together. And he's told us how it works, at least how we can understand it works in the Bible. And so we can't dismiss it by saying a loving God, using our own definition, would never send people to hell. He is just and righteous and holy. Objection three, this is a hard one. Uh, People say the punishment doesn't seem to fit the crime. Uh, my sinning for this life, this lifetime, doesn't seem to be justified with an eternity of punishment. Doesn't seem like it fits the crime. So I've been wrestling with this all week. And I was, you know, thinking, I just was, at one point, I don't know where I was, I was kind of doing this thing. Like, okay, a little short amount of time, eternity. I sinned now. How is that justified? How is the punishment justified for this little sin? And I realized I'm thinking about it the wrong way. And so here's how, I was, here's how I was changing the way I think about it. How do we determine what punishment fits the crime? It's based on levels. We have levels of crime, right? Levels of severity. And it's, we base the punishment on the deviation from the standard. So if you have a high standard, a very important, serious crime, and you deviate it, there's more of a punishment. So think about it this way. If, the sta- if we start here, and the standard is here, and we have a deviation then the crime is whatever is in between them. So, for instance, you have a small crime like um, trespassing. There's, the law says don't trespass, and you trespass. Well, there's a, there's a penalty for that. There's a gap in between those two. If it says don't steal, and you steal, there's a bigger gap, more punishment. What's the greatest crime one human could commit against another? Murder, right? So the law says don't murder, and you murder, there's a very serious punishment. Uh, you forfeit your life for that crime. Um, and corporal, capital punishment is if you murder someone else, then you have to give up your life. But if you murder five people, you can't die five times. You can't serve five life sentences. You only have one life to give. There is a cap on the punishment. It's, it's finite. There's a limit to the crime. There's a limit to the punishment. Okay? So the further you get away the more serious the punishment. All right. Now, what if the standard is an infinite and holy God and you sin? How big is the gap? Infinite. Infinity plus one is still infinity. So when we sin against God's standard, God as perfect, holy, righteous, pure. We've created an infinite separation between us and the standard. And we're immediately guilty of infinite sin, an infinite sin, and due punishment for that sin. And the more perfect and holy the standard is, the more heinous and horrific the sin is. And then you pile up that sin. So every time I sin, it's an infinite offense against God. And you pile up that over my entire life, That's an infinity of punishment that's due. So it's not a time issue. When people try to make it a, this this little time here doesn't deserve an eternal. It's not a time issue. It's It's a degree issue. It's a separation issue. You're comparing the depth and the debt of your sin against God's infinite glory. So an infinite punishment fits the infinite crime against the infinite standard which is God himself. So then, 
the fourth objection. How does hell glorify God? And if people are paying attention in church, you guys talk about how God does everything for his glory and we give glory to God and everything. How does hell glorify God? Why, does, why do we need to even understand this? Why is this a reality? Why does Jesus talk about it so much? <clears throat> hell displays the severity of our sin in contrast with the glory of the cross. So the worse hell is to us, the more glorious Jesus' work on the cross is. The more horrible hell is, the more glorious and amazing our rescue from it is. So just take my sin, for example, my own, just me personally. Every time I sin, I have an infinite offense against a holy God. And if you pile up my lifetime of those sins, you have an eternity of punishment. The wrath of God justly poured out on me because of my sin. It's horrible. It's worse than you could possibly imagine. And Jesus gives us that image. Suffering, anguish forever. And Jesus took that eternity of wrath on himself for three hours on the cross. Then let's multiply that by three or four hundred people in this room. You've got three or four hundred eternities of punishment in hell, agonizing in the depths of hell. And Jesus took all of it on himself for three hours on the cross. Then you multiply that by the billions of people over the course of human history who have been saved by the blood of Jesus. He took all of those billions of people, all of those eternities of suffering and anguish on himself for three hours and he died with it. The existence of hell as the just and righteous punishment for all of our sin glorifies the value of Jesus and his sacrifice by displaying the horror that he saved us from and what it cost him. How does God, how is God glorified by the existence of hell? The severity of the punishment magnifies the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and displays God's perfect grace and mercy. That's how hell glorifies God. So the response to this should be for us, and maybe at one point was for you, what must I do to be saved? Jesus is very serious when he's laying this out for us. And it goes back, that, comes, that phrase comes back to Acts 16, the Philippian jailer. He's about to, he's about to make a big, big mistake. Things are going crazy. And he stopped, they stopped him and he says, what must I do to be saved? And they say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Say, you, you desire the treasure in the field, the pearl of great value. Give up everything you thought, everything you have to gain that treasure. You need Jesus. You need his wrath-absorbing sacrifice because you can't bear your sin on your own. You need his 
sin-erasing redemption because you can't pay for sins on your own. You need his merit-satisfying righteousness because you can't be holy on your own. You need his life-indwelling spirit because you can't fight sin on your own. And it's all here for you to receive. If you repent of your sins, turn away from your sin, believe who Jesus is and what he did, receive his free gift of salvation that erases your debt and gives you his holiness, and follow him as a disciple. Jesus said in John 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. The end of this life will come, and one of two eternities awaits everyone. God has offered us the greatest treasure in the universe, which saves us from the greatest horror in the universe and assures us the greatest joy in the universe. And if you have received this treasure, your house is full. And he wants us to fling it because there are lost people all across this city who, if nothing changes, are going to be sorted in the end as bad fish, evil, unrighteous, and condemned to eternity in hell. This church should motivate us to call out from the lifeboat in desperation for their rescue. They would receive Jesus as their Savior. We cannot keep it to ourselves. Let's pray. Lord, the reality of this passage and what you've taught us here is that Everyone who will be in hell forever deserves to be there because of their sin. But the flip side of that is no one who will be in heaven deserves to be there either. This brings us back to the severity and the reality of your word, of the gospel. That the only way that we can have life and be saved is through you, Jesus. Help us to remember that this morning, to maybe think about it in a different way than we ever have and to think about that as we go and reach those who are lost. We love you and we'll serve you forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.